with a parting word and warning of instruction to each man by an officer standing in the trench, up and over the top we went. It was an odd feeling. It didn't seem like fear, nor even dread, but more just a feeling of wonderment at what we might see or learn as we pushed out into no man's land. I never saw so much barbed wire in my life. Private Ralph E. John, 1st Battalion, 308th Infantry Regiment, 77th Division, The Argonne Forest, 26 September, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 52, Murs Argonne, 26 September 1918, part 1, AEF First Corps. To kick things off, a hearty thank you to listener Richard, our latest patron on Patreon. Thank you, sir. Your patronage is greatly appreciated. Also, Many thanks to listener Rudy for your generous gift through PayPal as well. Thank you, sir. If you are interested in becoming a uh, patron of the BFWWP on Patreon, stick around until the end of the show and we'll go over the details then. Right now, we've got America's largest military operation beginning and we've got to get to it. To quickly recap from last episode, on the night of the 25th to the 26th of September 1918, 2,775 pieces of French and American manned artillery began to plaster the German army's defensive zone in the Meuse-Argonne region of eastern France. The great American offensive was here, and it was the first of four major Allied Supreme Commander Marshal Ferdinand Foch's planned sword thrusts at the teetering enemy. At 0530, nine of the American Expeditionary Force's massive infantry divisions were up and over the top. The Meuse-Argonne Offensive, which would eventually see over 1,200,000 American servicemen and women involved, had begun. This episode will cover the actions of the AEF's 1st Corps, led by Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett. The 1st Corps' attacking divisions were from left to right, the 77th, the 28th, and the 35th. These three divisions were arrayed from the west edge of the Argonne Forest and all the way east to the Butte du Vauquois. Just as we covered in the last episode, and I quote, 1st Corps was tasked with clearing the Argonne Forest and attacking down the valley of the River Air along the eastern edge of the forest. The 77th Division on the Corps' left was tasked with fixing the enemy in place in the Argonne and pushing them out while the other two divisions raced to cut off the entire forest at Grand Pré to the north. The 28th Division would be clearing the eastern portion of the forest and following the air and would be assisted by the 35th Division. The 35th Division would also be clearing the Butte du Vauquois. End quote. And yes, 
I just quoted myself from the last episode. I'm not entirely sure if that's good or bad. The 77th Division of the AEF had the task of clearing the Argonne Forest by pushing north through it. The division covered some three-quarters of the length of the forest through which the Western Front ran. The 28th had the rest. Raised from the men of New York City, the 77th had been nicknamed the Metropolitan or the Liberty Division. It was staffed with Italian, Jewish, and Polish immigrants, many of whom had tough backgrounds and were from less-than-gentrified neighborhoods. One doughboy described his comrades as a, quote, bunch of New York prison men, end quote. When it was in the front line, the Germans opposite had thought they were facing an Italian division. The Germans had heard nothing but Italian being spoken opposite them. But no, these were all men who had signed up to fight for their new and adopted country, the United States of America. The 77th had seen hard fighting in the Vell sector during the summer months, and its ranks had been bloodied and drained by thousands of casualties. The division had received new replacements within the last few days before the new offensive. Many of these men had been rushed to France and then further rushed through training. The men were transfers from the 40th Sunshine Division, a unit originally out of California that had become a depot division. The 40th was now used to train men and fill in the bloody gaps of the other depleted divisions. Some of these new and raw recruits, men from more rural backgrounds in the Midwest and West, didn't even know how to fire their rifle, much less how to use a protective mask or understand platoon assault tactics. Some men, like Private John, whose quote opened the episode, didn't join their new units until the 25th of September, just hours before they were to go on the attack. You definitely try to do the best with what you have on hand, but sending untrained recruits out into this offensive was not the best way to go about things. This would not be Salt Miel. Assaulting the Argonne Forest was going to be a daunting task. We're going to take a quick aside and talk about this forest, as it will figure heavily in our story. If you're able, get yourself on Google Maps or something similar and type in the name Saint-Menu, France. Don't worry, that will be spelled S-T for Saint, and Menu is spelled M-E-N-E-H-O-U-L-D. Set your view to satellite so you can see what the ground actually looks like from above. Once you're there, look at the big patch of green extending east from Saint-Menu to Clermont-en-Argonne. There's a big patch of forest from this line to the south, but this isn't our focus. From the Saint-Menu to Clermont line, look to the huge patch of forest that sprawls and then tapers way up north at the village of Grandpré. Along the western edge of the forest, the distance is about 40 kilometers from Saint-Menu to Grandpré. And from Saint-Menu to Clermont at the base is some 15 kilometers. This is the part of the forest that saw the Great War. 
From the time when the Romans had come through ransacking Gaul, the Forêt d'Argan had been a place to be avoided. Most invading armies had just gone around the massive forest, attacking through the River Air Valley on the east and the River N Valley on the west. The Aragon is a thick forest, the kind where tree growth is so close together there is a gloom under its canopy that sunlight cannot penetrate. In his book, Finding the Lost Battalion, Robert Laplander writes that, quote, It is a deep, dark, forbidding jungle, made up of large trees and young second growth over a dense, tangled carpet of thick undergrowth, cut through by a multitude of small streams and ravines of various sizes. The ravines edge off in steep ridges and limestone rock outcroppings, perfect spots for defensive positions. It is a rolling, rocky wilderness that harkens back to ancient times in its almost primal nature. Often in its deep recesses, solid footing gives way to sodden marshland without indication or warning and just as quickly changes back again. In many spots, visibility is virtually non-existent due to the heavy undergrowth and thick canopy above. Few real roads approached it, and even fewer traversed it, further making it seem an impregnable fortress." When my stepson Lee of the Viking Age podcast, my army brother Chuck, and I traversed the Aragon in August of 2018, we saw exactly what Mr. Laplander described. Yargon was no place to fight a modern war like the one launched in 1914. The First World War, though, with its continuous front lines to avoid flanking, saw the fighting end up right in the heart of it. Read a book, or 30, on World War I, and you'll find that every part of the Western Front was its own special corner of hell on earth. The Argonne Forest was no exception. The terrain here dictated the type of fighting that would occur, and it was here that specialized assault and stormtrooper tactics had their beginnings. In the autumn of 1914, the French used the knowledge of local woodsmen to gain advantage over the enemy. In the thick forest, attrition warfare instantly began. Small unit tactics were the way to go here. French troops laid ambushes along the forest trails, slaughtering German patrols and disappearing before they could be found. Trenches were hard to dig, so fortified positions were built up in the forest as best as both sides could. Combat then focused on these positions. Battles were short and brutal, with fighting up close and frequently hand-to-hand. Grenades were the primary weapon of choice. At night, Constant rifle and machine gun fire raked the woods from both sides to catch any night patrols. Mine warfare became another feature of the Argonne fighting, with both sides seeking to blow some of those fortified positions sky high. Casualties were correspondingly high, with an average of a thousand men killed and wounded per week along this part of the front. Throughout late autumn 1914 and early 1915, the Germans began to claw ground from the French as they, too, began to master the art of fighting in the woods. The Germans brought in artillery and gas along with concentrated attacks on fortified positions and locally advantageous terrain. 
Local offensives were launched in the forest, igniting fierce combat that flared regularly throughout the spring and summer. One target for the Germans was a small compound of buildings known as Fort de Paris, which sat at the southern end of today's D-38 road that takes you through the forest to Varennes. The Fort de Paris, four in French means oven, was a glass factory, an inn, and a few other buildings that sat on the northern side of a small river valley known as L'Abysme. In late 1914, the Germans began pushing towards this crossroads, laying waste to the area with artillery in the process. The French were pushed back until they had to abandon the area at the end of November, although they stopped the Germans shortly thereafter. Days before 1915 began, the French army counterattacked and retook the Fort de Paris compound, driving the Germans back into the forest some hundreds of meters. Today, the Fort de Paris is still on Google Maps, but nothing at its location would tell you people once lived there other than a commemorative cross. The entire compound was obliterated during the war. Combat exploded in other areas of the forest as well. And to the east, the French spent four months attacking the Butte du Vauquois and the nearby village of Bohoy in the Air Valley. German attacks continued into the summer, but from October 1915 onwards, the Argonne Front became quieter as the Germans decidedly went on the defensive. Trenches were eventually dug, and raids on these and the strong points continued. Mines regularly sent earth and men up into the heavens, with the craters then being bombarded with artillery. A testimony to the ferocity of the fighting in the forest was that French General Maurice Serret, commander of the French Third Army that oversaw the Argonne, reported 82,000 casualties by January 1915, nearly half of his army. By 1918, there was a strip of devastated earth running from north of Vienne-les-Châteaux on the forest's western edge to the Fort de Paris area and on through to the area south of Bohoy and Vauquois in the River Air Valley. It was this area that the 77th and 28th Divisions would be attacking from. At 0530, in a heavy fog, and with the roar of the bombardment all around them, the doughboys of the AEF's 1st Army went over the top. The men had been ordered to drop their packs and take only their combat loads, which was basically the gear and ammunition they carried on their bodies. Overcoats and blankets were to be left behind. Reserve rations were not issued. On the 1st Army's left, the 77th Division's men climbed out of their trenches and into the blasted forest. On the 77th's very left flank, shouldering up against the American 368th Infantry Regiment that was actually attached to the French 4th Army, a young Major Charles Whittlesey led his 1st Battalion, 308th Infantry Regiment, out and into the battle. To his right, the men of three other regiments of the 77th headed north into the fog. The fog almost instantly vaporized unit cohesion. The battle order of platoons, companies, and battalions fell apart once they were in the mist, 
men bunched together to stay at least within eyesight of each other in the gray soup. Visibility was no more than a couple of meters in some places. Once they left their lines, platoon and company commanders struggled to find their bearings with their compasses. It was no use. The sheer volume of shrapnel in the ground played havoc with the magnetic instruments. Robert Laplander reports that he experienced the same thing nearly 100 years later when moving through the Argonne. Follow-on battalions, meant to keep some hundreds of meters between themselves and the attacking battalions, found themselves running into their comrades up front. First Lieutenant Edward Lewis, a member of Major Whittlesey's command team, described the chaos. His account comes to us from Mr. Laplander's Finding the Lost Battalion. Quote, The Major said, let's go. He boosted the lieutenant to the parapet and was in turn pulled up by hand to take his perch on the edge of the weirdest panorama of mist and mystery that mortal imagination could conjure up. No man's land, which should have beckoned straight into the heart of the Argonne, was shrouded in a thick white fog. It seemed to close in from all sides on that little infantry company, isolating it entirely from the colossal Allied advance and nullifying in one chilly breath all the carefully planned instructions in regard to liaison, the vital necessity to keeping in touch. Beyond and through the fog, the flashes of bursting shells flickered. The ear was confused by the muffled echoes of friendly artillery. The eye was confused by the haze, which kept from vision all objects more than 100 feet away and curiously distorted the few stumps and posts that clung to the sides of the slope at their feet. It was almost as though the infantry was asked to go over the top blindfolded. Even more depressing than the lack of vision, however, was the dank breath of the argon, saturated until by dawn the air had passed mellowness with the odor of stagnant, muddy pools hiding beneath treacherous carpets of tangled wire grass and bringing to the nostrils of the new crusaders a reminder of the awful slaughter which had left another carpet on this mutilated soil in those historic days when a barrier of a horizon blue poilus had hurled back the crown prince's army. A dark blotch down the steep slope proved to be an abandoned French trench, 30 feet deep, filled with coils of rusty wire and spanned by a single log, all that remained of a footbridge. Reconnoitering to the right and left failed to reveal any other means of advance. Thus, this particular battalion headquarters went into action. Company B followed more slowly, platoon by platoon, squad by squad, until the log began to shrink, chipped by the gougings of many hobnails. According to the artillery plan, the rolling barrage was to advance every five minutes in 100-meter bounds. Hence, during the 45 minutes that one infantry company was making the first 50 meters in the Argonne Drive, the protection of supporting artillery had jumped ahead nearly 1,000 meters. End quote. The artillery did leave the attacking infantry behind. Communication between the two branches and the Allied armies left a lot to be desired due to technology and training, and this was especially the case in the AEF. The gunners, though, had done their job. The bombardment had pounded most of the known German positions and trenches out of existence, 
Of course, as we know from all World War I bombardments, someone always survives. Defending the Argonne Forest was the German 2nd Landwehr Division, a National Guard-like unit based out of the German region of Württemberg. These men were considered second-rate by Allied intelligence, but they had been in the Argonne for four years and knew the terrain inside and out. From west to east, Württembergische Landwehr Infanterie Regiment 122, 120, and 125 manned the lines. At first, as the doughboys worked their way carefully through the treacherous terrain, surviving German machine gun nests just fired blindly into the fog. German artillery began to fall amongst the advancing Americans. Resistance was light until around 9 a.m. when the fog began to burn off. Here, the Germans came awake. Machine gun nests dealt out streams of deadly fire, and airplanes came out to direct artillery against their enemy. The Germans weren't yet fully aware of who they were up against. They were reeling from the bombardment that had devastated their ranks and were wondering what kind of Frenchmen they were facing. With the capture of a few doughboys, they found out. Nicht Franz, sondern Amerikaner. As the fog wore off, combat became fierce. Both the Germans and the Americans began to pull themselves together, the former from the horrific artillery storm, the latter from the literal fog of war. The Germans, their regiments in shambles, launched local counterattacks that held up the American advance. In other spots, rear guard machine gun nests put out a wall of fire, hoping to give their retreating buddies time to reform a line further back. Bullets shredded the blasted tree trunks and cocky-clad bodies as the doughboys of the 77th, veteran and raw recruit, worked to maintain the advance. Small unit tactics developed entirely by the units on the ground now took over. AEF doctrine was left back in the American lines. None of what Pershing and his staff prescribed worked. In the 77th, the infantry platoons had the gang method where squads of men with specialized jobs would assault enemy positions. From First Lieutenant Arthur McKeel in his short memoir, The Victorious 77th, quote, The gang is a development of modern warfare. Numbering from 8 to 12, these men are trained specialists who have simulated attacks upon machine gun positions in practice. The gang is an elastic collection of perhaps two scouts, an automatic rifleman, with two ammunition carriers, two or three bombers, a rifle grenadier, and a couple of bayonet men. Each man has his job. The bombers are particularly effective because rifle fire, a grazing fire, is not of much avail against the protections of a nest. It is more vulnerable to bombs dropped from above. But the trees are serious obstacles to bomb throwing, unless the missiles can be hurled high through a branchless aperture. The automatic rifleman, sometimes called a light machine gunner, can bore and bore like a steel drill on one spot till eventually his lead breaks through. The officer does not intend to rush the nest frontally. It would be too costly. He will leave his company undercover, and with the two gangs infiltrate on both sides of the nest working around to its rear. With minuteness, he tells his non-coms where it is, Sergeant, 
You take their left. Corporal, I'll go with you to their right. Let's go. One by one, thus presenting no collective target, the men crawl out along the lines of a V. As they draw nearer, the nest breaks into a frenzy of fire. A courageous German dashes out from the rear of the position so that he will be near enough to the attackers to throw effectively his potato mashers, or hand grenades, so-called because they resemble the old-fashioned, long, wooden-handled kitchen utensil. Get that bird, someone shouts. For the first time, American bullets are spent. The Bosch drops with an agonized howl. There is something peculiarly soul-curdling about the cries of a wounded Bosch. The automatic rifles get into action. The bombers add to the fire. The Germans throw out rifle grenades. There are snatches of shouts above the clatter of musketry. Another long-drawn howl comes from the nest, a hit through their logs and corrugated sheet iron. A bomb drops at the edge of the nest. Another seems to have exploded right on top of it. Yes, it must have got home. Their fire is weaker. One of their guns is out, probably. They've stopped firing now. Is it a trick? No, they're finny. They're quitting. For through the trees at the rear, two gray-green figures are darting. Get them! There they go! The two Bosches have a fair start, for they came out of a little covered trench at the rear, leading to the nest. The woods are alive with action as a dozen yanks plunge after them. One turns, aims his pistol, fires, and falls. The other, unarmed, makes to raise his hands in kamahad attitude but his action is too late. In the nest are two dead forms, sprawled grotesquely. One fellow's mouth is open, as if he were snoring. His mustache is strangely well-brushed. Of the two heavy Maxim guns, one seems in good condition. The other shows bullet holes. End quote. As the morning gave way to the afternoon, combat morphed into very local fights, focused not on the divisions or the battalion's objectives, but on whatever German resistance they faced in front of them. Men were dispersed by the fog, then by the fighting and incoming artillery, and then by the thick forest itself. Officers simply collected what men they encountered and pressed forward. In 1st Battalion, 308th Sector, Major Whittlesey moved out ahead of his men with wire cutters. He opened up lanes through the belts as his soldiers struggled to keep up with him. It was the most useful thing he could do as a leader, literally opening a path for his troops. Heavy rain returned later in the day, and by nightfall exhausted doughboys hunkered down in newly captured trenches or fighting positions with nothing but their soaked uniforms between them and the rain. The division had advanced some two kilometers into the Argonne while Division Commander Major General Robert Alexander had wanted more out of his men. His Corps Commander, Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett, had told him to advance slowly and methodically. The 77th had met First Corps' objectives, so the progress made was okay. The 77th didn't realize it, but they had destabilized the German lines in the Argonne that day. The 2nd Landwehr Division was working hard to right itself, and while the 77th's left flank lay open due to developments in the Bienarville sector, the Germans were too disorganized to take advantage of it. To the right of the 77th, straddling part of the Argonne and the valley of the River Air east of the forest, 
was the 28th Division. Known as the Keystone Division due to its divisional symbol, the Germans of the next war, and in another forest, would call it Der Blutige Eimer, the Bloody Bucket. The 28th, originally a Pennsylvania National Guard unit federalized for the Great War, had seen vicious combat in the previous months in the Enmarn fighting. It had taken 9,000 casualties during that time. Brigadier General Dennis Nolan said of these men, quote, they were veterans, survivors, who didn't seem to be oppressed by the death of other men, their comrades. They were accepting it as part of the thing, with a very fine psychology. And if they had the chance to sleep, they went to sleep and slept until we woke them to get ready for another attack. They were good, end quote. Three regiments of the 28th were in the front line that morning, deployed from left to right. The 112th Infantry Regiment faced the Argonne, and the 109th and 110th Infantry Regiments faced the River Air Valley that bordered the Argonne on the east. The right shoulder of the 28th Division rested on the western end of the Butte de Vauquois, which belonged to the 35th Division. At 0530, the Pennsylvania boys were over the top and out into the attack. The 112th Infantry had the same hard time in the blasted Argon as their 77th Division neighbors did, working their way around massive mine craters as well as belts and belts of barbed wire wrapped around the trees. The Germans gave ground grudgingly, and by mid-afternoon the 112th had advanced about a mile into the woods keeping on line with the 77th to their left. East of the Argonne's edge was the valley of the River Air. In this more open ground, the doughboys of the 109th and 110th advanced into the fog. Between the edge of the Argonne and the slope of Vauquois lay the tiny village of Bohoy, which is described in Dr. Ed Langle's To Conquer Hell as a few walls standing mournfully above yawning craters and masses of crumbled masonry. Bohoy was quickly overrun by the 110th, and the 109th stayed apace as they pushed through light resistance. The artillery had done its job well thus far. In mid-morning, when the fog began to burn off, things changed. The doughboys were a mile into their assault when the cleared ground revealed the ruins of a town named Varennes. So, if you're into Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast and listen to his massive 55-episode-long series on the French Revolution, you may remember his episode 3.18, The Flight to Varennes. This was where... King Louis and Marie Antoinette tried to escape the revolution and were captured in a town called Varennes. This is that town, officially named Varennes on Argonne. In September of 1918, Varennes was in utter ruins. The junction of four local roads, this sizable village had hardly a building with four walls left standing after four years of war. Nevertheless, the Germans used Varennes as a supply depot and a command and communications sector. American battle plans reasoned that taking Varennes would tear open the Germans' first line with grave consequences for that line's defense. 
That morning of the 26th of September, with the fog clearing away to reveal thousands of American troops moving over the open ground south of Varennes, the world erupted. Machine gun fire from the ruins of the village sliced cruelly into the advancing doughboys. Men dropped by the dozens under the concentrated fire. Casualty counts began to rise. The elite 1st Prussian Guards Regiment, commanded by the second son of the Kaiser himself, was defending the village. The regiment had barely 130 men left after the crushing U.S. bombardment, but they were going to fight regardless. The American survivors kept advancing, though. The infantrymen were being supported by some of Colonel George Patton's Renault tanks of the 344th Tank Battalion, as well as some heavy French crude Schneider tanks. Within an hour, the outskirts of Varennes had been cleared of any German troops and positions, despite the troubling fact that the tanks kept breaking down or sinking into the marshy ground south of the village. The Prussians inside Varennes were breaking down, and they desperately called for help. To their right, the 125th Württemberg Regiment answered by pouring out machine gun fire from the edge of the Argonne, mowing down scores of attacking Americans. The Württembergers brought down artillery on the oncoming enemy. Shells rushed in from the heavens, bursting in geysers of earth and flesh as they tore into the Keystone troops. One of the attacking Renault tanks supporting the 109th Infantry was crewed by a Lieutenant John Castle and Corporal Donald Call. They were working their way towards a German machine gun nest when enemy artillery rounds started impacting all around them. One shell came in and hit the tank, ripping off half its turret. Corporal Call, no doubt stunned by the direct hit and struggling to breathe from the high explosive fumes, crawled out of his driver's hole and into a shell hole some 30 yards away. Corporal Call was not an experienced soldier or a lifelong military man. He was actually a stage actor out of New York City, schooled in landscaping. But he had been in France as an ambulance driver pretty much since America's entry into the war. He'd transferred into the tank corps in April of 1918, Regaining his senses and realizing Lieutenant Castle hadn't left the tank with him, Call now ran back to the twisted hulk. Bullets tore the ground around him and zipped through the air by his ears. Artillery continued to come in around him. Corporal Call reached the tank and dragged out his lieutenant. He then carried him for over a mile to the rear until he reached a first aid station. Donald Call was soon after promoted to second lieutenant, and in February 1919, he was awarded the Medal of Honor for saving Lieutenant Castle from the tank. Call was the first tanker in the United States military to receive that award. By the afternoon, the German position inside Varennes was untenable, and a reduced battalion of men numbering around 120 stayed in the ruins. These men would stay and fight it out with the oncoming doughboys, buying time for the rest of the Prussian guards to pull back to the Etzelstellung, the German second line. The Americans were breaking through. Pennsylvania men entered Varennes. German snipers were taken out methodically, and grenades were thrown into any cellars the Americans found. 
The ruins were cleared within a few hours. The 110th pushed on until it was stopped on high ground some two kilometers north of the village. And as the 109th on its left, nor the 35th Division on its right, could not keep up, these men stopped and dug in. The 28th Division's advance had been uneven, with its left flank pushing a mile into the Argonne, while its right had broken through three miles of enemy-held territory. It now had to hold, though, as on its right, a dangerous situation was developing in the 35th Division sector. The 35th, 1st Corps' 3rd Frontline Division, held the lines from the ruins of Bahoy eastward to the eastern slopes of the Butte du Valcois. It had two regiments in the front line, the 137th Infantry on the left and the 138th on the right. Both regiments were to push north at 0530 on the 26th, bypassing Valcois entirely. Behind them, the 139th Infantry would deal with the murdered hill that dominated the area. It was a lot to ask of the woefully inexperienced 35th Division. Its training was doubly pitiful, measured against the pitiful training the rest of the AEF had received. The Santa Fe Division had arrived in France in May 1918, but its only frontline service had been in the quiet Vosges front to the southeast. Made up of men from the Midwest, National Guard units from Kansas and Missouri, as well as drafted men from Minnesota and both Dakotas, General Pershing had said they were the, quote, best-looking lot of men I have got in France, end quote. A lot of these men were of Nordic descent, tough and big boys from Norway and Sweden who were used to heavy farm labor and could do it all day long. Of course, the unfortunate lesson here is that you really should never judge a book by its cover. These farm boys weren't trained and thus weren't ready to face the hungry artillery mouth and machine gun teeth of the monster that was the World War. A negative multiplier to the 35th situation was that it had stunningly bad leadership. Major General Peter Traub, an army officer, had recently been assigned as its new commander. Traub, an arrogant stuffed shirt who had been a brigade commander with the 26th Yankee Division, ran a poor division headquarters. He also thought little of the National Guard officers under his command, so he fired them all and replaced them with regular army men. He did this on the 21st of September, five days before the big offensive was to begin. The doughboys in the ranks resented these changes, and they knew their new officers had no time to get to know them before the big attack. At 0530 on the morning of 26th of September, the men of the 35th went over the top with the other eight attacking divisions. Behind the 35th's infantrymen, a young captain of Battery D, 129th Field Artillery, has led his men in firing over 2,000 75mm rounds towards the German lines over the last four hours. The work had left him deaf as a post, as he put in his own words, but he had told his gunners earlier, quote, Right tonight, I'm where I want to be, in command of this battery. I'd rather be right here than President of the United States. 
You boys are my kind. Now let's go in. End quote. Now, curiously, that young captain's name was one Harry Truman. The doughboys of the 137th and 138th jumped off into the heavy mist and fog. The low visibility led some men to become lost, but by and large, the battalions went around the ruins of Vauquois Hill. By 0830, the men of the 138th were crossing Buanta Creek, south of a small crossroads village named Shepi that lay east of Varennes. The 137th was on their left, on a line between Shepi and Varennes. This was when the Germans opened up on them with a withering storm of machine gun fire. Men went down in droves, the bullets tearing into them. Many were punched back or slammed down to the ground by unseen hands, their chests and backs bursting as they were hit. Screams rent the air as a heavy fire cut deep into the ranks of untrained doughboys. The advance stopped. It got worse at 10 when the fog fully lifted and the Germans could really see what they were doing. The commander of 1st Battalion, 138th Infantry, was killed with a shot to the head. His battalion promptly began falling apart as no one knew what to do next. Colonel Howland, the new commander of the 138th Infantry, certainly did not know what to do. The overwhelmed man suffered a nervous breakdown on the spot. To his left, Colonel Hamilton of the 137th did the exact same thing, laying down in a shell hole unable to move. We cannot know how we would act in such conditions, but at that moment, this was the worst thing that could have happened. Some officers and men on the ground knew what to do, or at the very least knew they had to do something. St. Louis, Missouri native Captain Alexander Skinker, a well-educated businessman and National Guard officer, directed one of his shell-shot automatic rifle teams to take out a particular machine gun nest that was decimating his eye company. The men took off as ordered, and the ammo carrier was dropped instantly by enemy fire. Skinker took the carrier's place. The show-show gunner laid down heavy fire as the surviving doughboys worked their way through the heavy belts of barbed wire in front of the enemy nest, and all the while Skinker fed him new magazines. Then Skinker was hit and killed. His gunner was killed shortly after. The fire they had put out, though, had given their comrades the chance to keep the attack going, and for that... Captain Alexander Skinker would be posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. Had the fog not lifted here, there was a man who probably would have cleared it out himself, for he was impatient and could no longer wait to find out where his tanks were. Yes, then Lieutenant Colonel George S. Patton. Patton walked out of his headquarters down in Neuvilly and walked up to the front line. There, he found a growing disaster. His Renault tanks were breaking down or getting stuck in the muddy ground. More troubling were the dozens and hundreds of men who were clearly leaderless and milling about dangerously. After he and his orderly, Private Angelo, helped dig out a few of the tanks, Patton set about rallying men for the needed attack on Sheppey. He gathered five tanks and about 150 men and herded them toward the front lines. By hurting them means that he screamed, swore, and swung his walking stick menacingly at these soldiers. 
He later said he hit one man over the head with a shovel and likely had killed him. Patton led his men to high ground west of Sheppey, where the Germans opened up on them with a fire so fierce even Patton was scared to death. He later wrote this was the moment he saw his ancestors before him. But it sounds more like he simply made his peace with the fact that he was about to likely be killed. He rose and yelled for the men to follow him. Only Private Angelo and five others rose, and those five were mown down as soon as they rose. It wasn't long before Patton himself was hit with a bullet that punched into his left thigh and blew out through his backside, narrowly missing his wedding tackle. Despite the wound, he stayed on the battlefield for another couple of hours, directing Private Angelo to get the tanks and men moving. Angelo followed orders and would earn himself the Distinguished Service Cross later on. Patton earned the DSC as well, though in his professional opinion, he thought it should have been a Medal of Honor because, you know, it's Patton. The men eventually began attacking, and they got smart about it really quick. A Colonel H.W. Parker took over the 138th Infantry Regiment. The Doughboys got behind the Reynolds as they headed towards Sheppey, letting the tanks blast away at enemy positions while they fired at anything that moved ahead of them. To the east of Sheppey, a Lieutenant Wingate and some 60 men approached the ruined village. One of his men was Private Nels Wald, a farmer born to Norwegian immigrants in North Dakota. Wald was known as a devout Christian who avoided the overdrinking and womanizing that many of his fellow doughboys engaged in any chance they got. Wald was actually respected for his inner fortitude, and now his strength of character was shown to this small corner of the world. Wald single-handedly went out and eliminated four German machine gun nests, killing some of the enemy gunners and capturing the rest. He would bring back the prisoners and head back out. On the outskirts of Sheppey, Wald lost precious moments dealing with a camouflage net that was keeping him from outflanking a fifth enemy gun crew. The Germans swung their gun on him and shot him down. Nels Wald would later be honored for his extraordinary bravery with a posthumous Medal of Honor. From the efforts of the three men above and hundreds of others, the village of Sheppey fell. The Wiesenschlenken line was broken through. The men of the 137th and 138th regiments were too disorganized to continue on. Casualties among officers had been heavy. Coming up behind these two units was Lieutenant Colonel Ristine and his 139th Infantry, flushed from their victory of having taken the feared Butte de Vauquois. The French had told the AEF it would take at least 70 hours to conquer that particular hill. It had taken Ristine and his men 45 minutes. The Prussians on the hill had decided to abandon the position when they found themselves surrounded by swarms of Americans. Four years of bitter warfare that had seen a medieval village and six meters of height erased from the top of this height, as well as mine warfare that had literally blown the heart out of this hill, had come to an end. Lieutenant Colonel Ristine was ticked off at what he saw with the 137th, and he was utterly disgusted when he spoke with the shell-shocked Colonel Hamilton. 
Christine wasn't seen as the best officer around. His peers floated the word bonehead behind his back. But he decided to do something in keeping with command's orders to continue the attack, and he decided to leapfrog his regiment over the 137th and began to do so. As his troops pushed through, they were joined by men of the 137th. This force pushed through Sheppey and beyond until they reached Hill 202 to the north. Here, Ristine had to stop and begin separating which men were under his command and which ones technically were not. As the 26th of September ended, the 35th Division could look back on a three-mile advance, but it was hardly in any shape to keep attacking. The 137th and 138th Regiments were leaderless, and the 137th was coming apart. The 139th Regiment was keeping it together, but it was also suffering from battlefield confusion as it was mixed in with men of the 137th. Division Commander Major General Trobe was out trying to be the frontline leader, admittedly, as General Blackjack Pershing wanted and preferred. But his travels left him missing from his headquarters and unavailable to be reached. Communications were abysmal. As a result, his inexperienced headquarters staff dithered when faced with the need to make decisions in his absence. Lucky for the 35th, and the 1st Corps was that the Germans were in disarray as well. North of the 35th Division, the Prussian 5th Guards had been ordered to counterattack the Americans in the Sheppey vicinity, but by late morning it was too late. All the Prussians could do was call in artillery and prepare for the next fight. Had the Germans attacked the men of the 35th, they could have potentially severely disrupted the American offensive or turned the tables on the whole enterprise. As the day closed, the AEF's 1st Corps had not met its objectives. The Corps divisions had not marched the planned 16 kilometers and cut off the Argonne Forest. The men had not broken through to the 3rd German position as planned. However, the 1st enemy position, the Wiesenschlenken line, had been ruptured at Verhoen and Chappie, and there in the Air Valley, the exhausted doughboys were pushing up against the enemy's 2nd defense line. In the Argonne, the Americans were up against the first line or breaking through it. The enemy was in disarray, as mentioned above. On the other side of the battlefield, General Max von Galwitz later wrote, quote, I believe myself justified in stating that our front between the Argonne and the Meuse was broken through on September 26th, as the Americans in several places had penetrated to the extent of seven kilometers. End quote. As Robert Laplander points out in his book, Finding the Lost Battalion, von Galwitz was off in his measurement. The average American advance was about four kilometers. There was no doubt the German army was feeling what the Americans had hit, had hit them with. Next episode, we'll continue on with part two of the Meurs-Argonne Offensive's opening day, We'll look at the attacks carried out by the divisions of the 5th Corps in the center of the Meuse Valley. All right, so that part about Patreon. Here we go. If you enjoy the show and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron through Patreon. 
Patrons there will have early access to episodes as well as access to the transcripts used to create the episode. The transcripts contain detailed bibliographies of the books, articles, and other sources I use to help put these narratives together. Patrons also have other perks, such as submitting a question that I'll research and answer to the best of my ability, and the possibility of naming a battle you'd like to hear covered on the show. Take a moment and check it out at www.patreon.com slash Battles of the First World War podcast. Also, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, there is a PayPal link on firstworldwarpodcast.com that will take you step-by-step through the secure process. And of course, as always, if neither of the above are an option for you at this time, you can still greatly help the BFWWB by submitting a review on iTunes. We are at 223 reviews as of the writing of this episode, and it is such a big deal to me that you folks out there take the time to do it. Thank you so, so much. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or get at me on the Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook and definitely check out the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com. I am slowly getting all the photos of my August trip to the Western Front posted. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.